We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap and book club celebrity memoirs, we pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes, if it's a real doozy, we cry. If you have ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Now, today we are book clubbing the memoir of Ginger Rogers titled My Story, as all memoirs written before 2000 seem to be. This one was published in 1991, which is just four years before Ginger died at the age of 83. Now, I assume you know Ginger Rogers, but just in case, she is a film legend from the 1930s. There's that famous quote, Ginger Rogers could do everything Fred Astaire could, only backwards and in high heels. She's a famous dancer who originated Roxy Hart in Chicago. She was in the movie Top Hat. She played Kitty Foyle, Monkey Business. I mean, there's like 50 films I could list. She is an old school film legend, but this book being written in 1990 gave it a very funny twist I was not expecting. And while I wasn't sure what I was gonna get in a Ginger Rogers memoir, it certainly was not this. You like Havana and I like Havana. You eat banana and I eat banana. Havana, Havana, banana, banana. Let's call the whole thing off. So let's dive in. Please welcome Karen Chi. Hello, yay. 
Thank you so much for being here. We have seriously been reading this book for a year. I think a year ago we decided we were going to do this. I remember we had a date down and so I was like, okay, great. I was on track to finishing it and then we changed the date and then now I had to go back and review what happened in the first like three quarters of her life because I was like, I don't remember. (laughs) It's dense. I had to go back as well because I was reading this book a little bit on my honeymoon. So (laughs) I really had to go back. I was like, wait, I feel like we were like walking around on a beach and I was learning about Ginger Rogers being stolen on a train. Yes. We'll get into it. So I am so curious. What made you choose this book on our list of books? (laughs) I chose this book because I know literally nothing about Ginger Rogers. And the only thing I knew about her was that quote that you had mentioned, the Fred Astaire one. I think truthfully a lot of times when I try and read celebrity memoirs I'm sort of like this means nothing to me I don't know these people in person (laughs) yeah and so it felt like Ginger Rogers would be better because she felt like a historical figure yeah and it would be like reading history is what I had thought the book would be like and is that what you discovered from reading it Chelsea I don't know what you thought this was a really weird book it's a really weird book it feels like she had no editor Somebody typed up everything she said in one go. Yes. Also, the writing style is interesting because it was so forthright that honestly, it felt like the book was written with like that transatlantic accent. (laughs) (laughs) That theater accent. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I went to theater school in like the last year before they realized everything they were teaching us was so dated, but I was taught the transatlantic (gasps) theater accent. I had to like translate it and try to learn it with this voice you're hearing. Uh, It didn't work. It didn't take, but I was... (laughs) I wasn't in college 20 years ago. So it was pretty recent when they were like, theater actors must talk with a transatlantic accent. I was like, I don't think so, you guys. I think we're done. Wow. Can you still do it now? Uh, You just heard me trying. So I think no. Gotcha. (laughs) I don't think I could do it then. Um, Yes, that is so funny. Everything is written in like upstanding voice. Yeah. Yeah. Even the little things felt so declarative. I thought one of the weirdest things to me was the way she refers to her mom, who is a giant presence in her life, but it goes from like mother to Leela and then she changes her name to Lily. Yes. Yeah. And then calls her Mackie also. And I was like, stop this. Just call her mother. <laughs> yeah. We need one name. Yeah, her her mom is the biggest surprise in the book for me. And I am like you where, of course, I know who Ginger Rogers is, but I'm not studied in her. I love her work. But as a person, I was like, oh, she's a little hall monitor. Yeah. She is the person that tells the teacher you passed a note, Mm, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is how I felt. So, okay, let's dive in. I will say the intro to the book tricked me because at first I was like, oh, this is going to be good. She said, celebrity books have flooded the marketplace for the past decade, giving ghostwriters and unauthorized biographers a field day to extract and print every secret and skeleton of famous film stars. I vowed that mine would not be a sensational book. Too many people have been hurt by revelations and misinformation in that kind of book. When I refer to my relationships with famous personalities in these pages, I have tried to use discretion and taste. My faith in humanity leads me to believe that people are looking for something more elevating than the sordid details of the intimate aspects of one's personal life life. Gossip is hardly uplifting. For my purposes, this had to be a book of substance. So I said, yes, book of substance. (laughs) Yes, elevate me. Yes, take me deeper. But instead, the only sentence that is true is uh, this would not be a sensational book. (laughs) (laughs) So that that was my feeling on it. The book as a whole is a tome. Yes. 
And I, there's something with theater books. This is like my fourth theater memoir I've read. I finally put my finger on it. They take these chapters where they just print the playbill. You know, mm. they take they take you through the opening night, the closing night, the composer, the director, the stage manager, stage left, stage right, the rehearsal schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and like everything. That's what I meant by there's no editor is she just sort of drones on and on. I feel so bad. We're really attacking Ginger Rogers here. No, it's just the book. Ginger Rogers herself. I remain a fan. Yes. Uh, interpersonally, she's not going to make the list of, you know, who would you want to have dinner with, dead or alive? Like, Ginger's not invited to that imaginary dinner party. <laughs> I could be given 100 guests, and Ginger is now going to not make the list. Yeah, no, I agree. And there were also moments where I was like, she's almost an interesting person here, but she doesn't make any commentary on what is happening and just carries on. Like, she's trying to list everything in her life. Like, she meets Dorothy Parker, and then the moment when, like, Neil Armstrong lands on the moon I was like what is your emotional reaction to these things and nothing and she just carries on (laughs) there are no emotions in the book even when her beloved mother dies not a single emotion we just kind of get bible verses and I will say Karen there is an editor there's a co-author her name's Jane so (laughs) wait I didn't know that there's a co-author named Jane Jane Scoville oh yes Uh, Let's go through the highlights. We will not hit the playbills. For anyone who's a Ginger Rogers fan, get the book, read the playbills. I'm not touching them. What I am going to touch is that her mom, Leela, basically gets married and finds out her husband lied to her and was 12 years older than he said. Then she gets pregnant, and when she gives birth, the doctor, without her permission, uses forceps to uh, extract the baby, and the baby dies. And this is sort of a key detail that I put together myself. It was not tied together in the book. I'm a little detective. But a key detail because her mom's going to come to really be anti-medicine. And I think this is the moment Mm. that she becomes like anti-doctors, anti-medicine. Because then she has Ginger. And the best story in the book is the very beginning where Ginger is stolen. one of the family members of the husband who she divorces like steals Ginger and takes her on a train and her mom goes on this quest like going to train stations being like have you seen a stolen baby have you seen a baby that looks like this it's why I mean was that story wild to you it was amazing and it was also within the first few pages of the book and so I was like this book incredible start to this tome this book rips yeah yeah And there's something about it that felt so, like, early 1900s, like, man steals baby on train at nighttime, like, was thrilling to read about. (laughs) Thrilling. And also, as you're reading it, you know, I'm sorry to be this person, you guys, but I was just like, how? How would you just, with no internet, no phones, no cell phones, no, like, she just had to call train stations and, and was like, have you seen a baby in the past four hours? And a man was like, yes, I have. So so then her mom is trying to track down stolen Ginger, who has been stolen by a member of her dad's family to bring her to Texas. And her mom feels like she has lost Ginger and stumbles into a little like entryway to to a little store. And she's like taking refuge and she meets a Christian scientist who tells her, your baby will be found. (laughs) And when Ginger is reunited with her mom, her mom becomes a Christian scientist forever. And so does Ginger. And her mom starts teaching her about how to pray to heal your wounds away versus go to the doctor. And Christian scientists uh, languages throughout the book. Yes. Wow. I am so in awe that you tied the anti-medicine to the baby force up thing. (laughs) 
from before. I fully did not make that connection at all. Well, it also might not be true. It's just, I, yeah, I have no idea. I was just like, oh, maybe you're predispositioned to to feel this way. But yeah, the, the Christian scientist religion was a shock to me. Did you know that about Ginger? No, I mean, I think everything was a shock to me because I really didn't know anything about her oh, yeah. at all. And so Christian science was a shock. Is that also why she doesn't drink? I guess. I think so, yes. Okay. Yeah. That one was a shock because in my mind, I was like, every movie star from the 20th century was drunk constantly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not Ginger. I mean, the cool things about Ginger is that she works so hard. So a yes. lot of her success is attributed to her work ethic, which is, I mean, it's cool anytime that shows up. But also, she has five husbands and way more engagements with not a drop of alcohol. I'm in awe. Yeah. No, that was genuinely <laughs> incredible. Although there was a moment where like... Wait, was it her first or second husband who, like, had previously dated her aunt? Oh my god, I forgot about that. The second husband, I believe. It's so hard because this is how husbands go in the book. (laughs) She's like, and then I married Jack. Then you'll get sort of 19 chapters on the different plays she did. And then a little paragraph at the end of one play will be like, and then Jack and I divorced. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, there's no emotional depth to anything. And I almost wonder, maybe she was working so hard. She didn't have time to process anything emotional in her life. Yes, but also, you know, she was 79, 80 as she's going through this book. You would think there would be. But yeah, no deets on the husbands, really. We we get one, which we'll get to later. Um, the other really cool part of this story that I loved is that, you know, she's coming up. She's going to be a star in the 1930s, which makes it even more interesting that her mom is a single mother Hmm. raising her and her mom works at a newspaper and knows all about Hollywood and makes her dancer. This is momager energy on high. She never that we know of is abusive to Ginger at all, but she does have that, that personality of these famous momagers. I loved that she was like a single mom who is going to be forthright and successful and make her daughter a success in that era, especially. Yeah, that was actually really cool. There was a moment where I was like, I almost wish I could read a biography on her mom instead. Me too. Yeah, there were so many moments where I was like, wait, this lady is not like anybody I have heard of or imagined to be alive at this time. Do you remember like right after Ginger was born? And this is where I was like, oh my gosh, this kind of toxic women energy was around back then where she was like, she gave birth and immediately went right back to work. And isn't that amazing? You know? Yeah. I was like, what? (laughs) Got right back in her old figure like that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then the mom wanted to be a screenwriter, right? Yeah, she wanted to be a screenwriter. And I love it. She would get jobs at the newspaper and be like, my baby comes with me. Yeah. Unheard of in that day and age. Incredible. Yeah. Even hard to do now. Very true. Very true. Yeah, no, Leela Leela is both a hero and a villain in the book for me. She makes Ginger a dancer. I want to get to some really juicy parts. So I'm just going to kind of overall her childhood. She, Ginger is a great dancer. She gets her into a dancing contest. She starts to get like fame. People start to see her and notice her. And she becomes a theater actress and dancer first. And then she's going to make her way to Hollywood. But at 17, Ginger gets married. Yes. Now, tell me, was there any child highlights you wanted to mention before we jump into the juice? 
I don't think so. I did like the thing about her mom. Her mom said she didn't let Ginger become a child actor right away because she had seen children abused. Yes. So which makes yeah. me think mom was intense, but mom was not abusive. That's how I feel too. Like okay. I'm not willing to give it 100%, but yeah. I feel, I feel I'm on that side as well. Because <laughs> her mom is also a rule follower. Things must be done the right way, the correct way. You know, she, she wouldn't ever allow Ginger to work more than she should have, but she was just very on point. Her mother was. Yes. Yes. Okay, so Ginger falls in love with a guy named Jack, who's a co-star. Her mom says, I will abandon you forever if you get married. You're out of your mind. You were supposed to have a career. Ginger's like, I'm going to get married. Jack is her aunt's ex-boyfriend. Oh, that's Jack. So yes. then Lou must have been the co-star, and Lou is second. Um, it must be. Yeah, yeah, because Jack okay. is also like 12 years older than her, right? Right, which was also her mom's first husband. I know. I was thinking about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Yes. That's right. <laughs> it's so hard to get these husbands straight. <laughs> so Jack is the aunt's ex-boyfriend. Ginger marries him. Her mom abandons her. Mm-hmm. Then two months into it, Ginger goes, oops, mom was right. This sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like ironing his shirts all the time. I want to be a dancer. She leaves her husband, reunites with her mom. She and her mom will live together for the rest of time. Yeah. Ginger will have four more husbands and several engagements, but mom is roommate for the rest of time. I kind of it, I kind of loved it. I'm not sure why. These were some of my favorite mom stories. So when Ginger first gets to Hollywood, she goes into like the hair, I was about to say the hair trailer. I'm sure it was not a trailer at that time. Uh, but she goes, you know, to get her hair done and they give her a magazine. They say, read this, it's gonna take a while. And they dye her hair blonde behind her back. And she calls her mom who comes in and is like, I'm suing the hairdresser. I'm suing the hair dye. I'm calling the studio. And Ginger says, but don't I look prettier? And then her mom is like, oh, yes. Okay, she remains a blonde. (laughs) It's a really weird mom-daughter relationship. Yeah, the way she calls her mom in is incredible. My other favorite mom story is on page 143. Ginger is doing a movie with Fred Astaire. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of a famous uh, story in Hollywood lore of this feathered dress. So I loved that she wrote the actual details in the book. So she has this incredible blue feathered dress she wants to wear. The director tells her she's not gonna wear it. With that, he opened the door and made a director's exit. I was stunned, brokenhearted, disappointed, and angry. Had I been the type of actress to show my emotions, I would have cried, thrown something, or disappeared into the ladies' room for a few hours. I decided to telephone my mother. Mother, come over to the studio right away, please. What's wrong? It's better to explain when you get here. Please hurry. (laughs) Then down below, her mom says, what's wrong? And she says, all I know is, mother, what I've just told you. The dress barely got in the door, and suddenly I became a villain. And then... Her mom says, well, you're wearing that dress. She says, I am wearing that dress. And then they go back in. Her mom, Leela, talks to the director. And then they walk out. And she says, this much, mother, I'll tell you. It's either that dress or home I go. So wait, you may have to take me home yet. And then she finds out Fred doesn't like the dress because it gets feathers on his suit when she dances. And she said, he didn't like my dress and I didn't like being put to the test. Then just a classic celebrity memoir drinking game. Uh, She said, my 105 pounds couldn't have got me through the first round without my mother at my side. Just exact weight listed. And her mom is like, she wears the dress or she quits the movie. And with her mom watching, she goes and dances in the dress and uh, Fred has to deal with it. (laughs) 
imagine being Fred Astaire in that situation, right? Like trying to be respectful of your coworker whose mom is like really intense and telling him what to do. Oh, I know. But also it kind of has this great tinge of like Fred Astaire was Fred Astaire. So what he said went like starlets can't decide things and yeah. she stands her ground, but she has to have a mom back up. Yeah. Do you watch Vanderpump Rules? No. Should I? Okay. No. Oh, <laughs> No, but for anyone who does, it was really giving Katie's mom energy where you just bring your mom on to to fix the things. Mm. Um, Yeah, and then later Fred sends her a card that says, Dear Feathers, I love ya, Fred. (laughs) So that they can like do more movies together. I wonder, do we think Fred was a nice man? It sounded like it in the book. Um, There was also a reference to Fred being rumored to be gay in the book. Oh, wait, I don't remember that. It was slight. It was, uh, she was talking about how a male choreographer danced the ginger part so many times with Fred that she said, I think it was like Wagley journalist often wrote that he was his favorite dance partner. Oh, interesting. Or I'm misreading Hollywood history. Unclear. I mean, I feel like Ginger made it very clear she's not going to give us any kind of salacious gossip. So I feel like that hint is, you know, it's proportionally huge. Yes, a huge, huge thing. And also, I just I just put it in Google. I just said, let's just hear from Google real quick. They said Fred Astaire was a perfectionist. So it sounds like he was maybe Ginger's match in a way. Yeah. The funniest thing about their relationship is that it sounds like they dated before they ever worked together. And she said, like, he was an incredible dancing partner because uh, the most fun part of dancing was the conversation. I said, what? And she talked about how he could keep rhythm and do the moves while having like a good chat. Yeah, that's very sweet. It is very sweet, but also the dancing's hard enough. There's also (laughs) chat. Like, what a time to be alive. (laughs) No, that's true. And also the dancing that she describes with him is like the Charleston, right? It's very quick and tiring. It's not like slow dancing or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they like kiss for five minutes in the back of his limo. And then they go on to work together. So there is a thousand details we are not getting from this book in any way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she also wrote, over the years, myths were built up about my relationship with Fred Astaire. The general public thought he was a Svengali who snapped his fingers for his little trilby to obey. In their eyes, my career was his creation. It just so happens that when Fred and I came together for the first time in Flying Down the Rio, it was his second film and my 20th. That's great. I actually love that. Yeah. I said, yes, bitch. Good for her. Get it, bitch. I love that she was like, it'll be all factual, but in her facts, she will throw shade. Yes. <laughs> Then we get back into, like, she's gotten married to a guy named Lou, L-E-W. Yes. And on her, so, you know, her dad's not a part of her life since the train incident. (laughs) And her agent says, I want to accompany you to the wedding and sort of, like, walk you to the entrance of the church. Like a dad would do everyone. Her male agent is like, let me give you away. I said, ew. And then in the car, he proposes marriage to her and says, don't marry him, marry me. It's crazy. All the men in her life are so insane that I'm shocked she is at all a normal person. Like Nobody is acting normal around her. Yeah, you're right. It's actually like she comes out with a pretty stringent personality, but maybe that's how she survived. Yeah. It was just being like, Absolutely not, sir. Good day. (laughs) 
It might be because there was also, do you remember that part where she goes out with the editor of The New Yorker? Remind me. So it was it was Harold Ross, who I had never realized was like a big flirt. Like I just heard his name in relation to The New Yorker as an editor. And when he shows up in this book, he's like a fully grown man, already the editor of The New Yorker, so probably quite old. He's taking her out on dates when she's 19. And her mom is like, oh yeah, Harold's my friend. He wouldn't do anything. They can go out on dates, which is crazy. And so it's essentially her mom's friend who like, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, my parents' friends are very safe people to me. They're like good, trustworthy adults. I trust them to be normal people who are not going to be weird to me. And for Ginger, she just didn't have that. All the adult male figures in her life wanted to sleep with her. Yeah, that's such a good point. And in a world where she's dating her aunt's ex-boyfriend, Just no man's a good man. I mean, this agent says, like, let's talk seriously. I mean this. And then he gets out and he tells her mom, like, how about I marry her? And Ginger says, well, this is all new to me. And then she says, I'm not leaving him at the altar. Then chapters later, this agent is still there. He stays her agent for the rest of her time. (laughs) I said, what? That's probably the craziest part, that she did not fire him and that he didn't, you know, decide to part ways. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Or that he didn't, he wasn't even embarrassed? No. No, not at all. And then this is where, it actually wasn't till page 153 when I really realized uh, what a gem Leela is, her mom. So her mom, you know, once Ginger starts having success, again, this was a woman who wanted to be a screenwriter. She starts holding workshop activities at the Hollywood Playhouse. And it says, mother contacted all the contract players to offer them acting lessons and got J.R. McDonough, the head of the studio, to use his authority to get these young players to respond. Most of them, including Lucille Ball, Betty Grable, Joy Hodges, Leon Ames, Anne Shirley, Tyrone Power, and Phyllis Frazier did, only one person failed to answer. So her mom, again, not an actress, not an acting teacher, has no training other than what she did with Ginger, which I, you know, ain't nothing, demands that she give acting lessons to contract players who already are successful actors. Her mom is an incredible scammer, I think. Yeah. Like a a rule-following scammer. It's so interesting because Hollywood lore, before I opened this book, was that her mom had discovered Lucille Ball. I've heard that tossed around. Perhaps there's more to the story that's in the book, but it sounds like Lucille Ball was working at a studio and her mom demanded she teach her things. And then finally, Joan Fontaine is the one who won't respond to the call. And when her mom, Leela, calls to say, why won't you come learn from me? She says, Leela Rogers, Joan said in a businesslike tone, you can't teach me anything. Mother gasped at this, hung up the phone, and repeated the conversation. Al said, guess you can't win them all. Then she goes to see Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, which Joan is in. When Mother left the theater, she turned to Al and said, you know, that kid knew what she was talking about. What a talent. She certainly didn't need me. All she needed was Hitchcock. So she's like, me or Hitchcock. Mom is so weird. Like, part of me really respects that. She's very wily, right? Like, these are ways in which she can make money. She can attach herself to already famous people, maybe like a network for her daughter and on the other hand I'm like you have one short precious life and this is what you're doing (laughs) completely it's like I love yeah love the go-getterness but what you're just forcing lessons on people who don't need you yeah (laughs) it's so funny for clout yes and then, you know, then we find out that she has divorced Lou, L-E-W, because mm. uh, he, he drinks. 
Ginger doesn't like drinking. And then she writes this. My home was made for entertaining and I gave party after party. Most of them were informal. I'd serve spaghetti and we'd play some night tennis. Alcohol was never served, just cold drinks. One, a mixture of finely crushed ice, seven up and concentrated orange juice was a real favorite for the tennis crowd. Spaghetti and (laughs) night tennis parties. And also with a truly disgusting sounding drink. (laughs) But the ice is finely crushed. Can you imagine eating a plate of spaghetti and then playing night tennis at a party? It's really wild. It's one of those things where I'm like, I wonder if she did that knowing that it would be the talk of the town. Like, someone's going to be around, you know, in Hollywood the next day being like, you will not believe what I did at Ginger Rogers' house last night. She gave us (laughs) spaghetti and made us play tennis at one in the morning. It truly sounds like the worst uh, after prom abstinence party where they're like, get in the gymnasium, we have spaghetti, we got Sprite, orange juice, and tennis. (laughs) Okay, this feels like a good time to take a quick break. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup, how I got my break into Hollywood, when I found out my dad was not my real dad, the time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah, growing up around cults how I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes, some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. I also wonder, like, because her mom is kind of like her coworker, I, and her roommate, and her roommate, when she's having these parties, her mom is also there, right? Oh yes, yeah. oh yes. 
I feel like they were a party where you would be judged. Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah. And also trying to see, like, is this person going to make us more famous or not? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Then at some point in these pages, Howard Hughes rings her up and says, I have a movie premiere tomorrow. Will you be my date? And what she wrote, I could not understand if she had said yes or no. Where Basically, she said, oh, cameras would be poised for his special moment. But she doesn't say if she went or didn't go. So I assume she went because I was trying to find the photos. And then later, way after this, they begin dating. Is that how you read their first interaction? Wait, I don't even remember that part of the book. You don't? (laughs) I loved the Howard Hughes part because, you know, listen, I watched the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. And so I'm just, I'm all in on Howard Hughes. Did you ever watch that movie? Okay, so Howard Hughes, I highly recommend you watch the film. It's called Aviator. Okay. It's with Leonardo DiCaprio. It shows kind of what an epic filmmaker he was but then he has a descent into madness where he believes like the CIA is listening the FBI is following him and he begins peeing in jars um, and keeps them all around his house and uh, I highly recommend but Howard Hughes he sounds like he was not well at all he was not well he was not well she said Howard Hughes was extremely possessive and terribly jealous he would always want to have his own way whether it was in outlining a trip or ordering a meal he liked to call the shots I began to get the feeling that someone was reporting to him on my doings which is his paranoia then she said one evening I was eating my dinner when Howard called Princess, I have to go to the dentist tomorrow at 10.30. I want you to go with me. The doctor says you need a cleaning anyway, so I'll come by your house at 10 and we'll go together. A typical Howard Hughes phone call. No, Howard, I said. Why not? I'll tell you in a few days. At that moment, though, I didn't know exactly what I would tell him. I knew I had to let him know his behavior was peculiar. By the way, they are engaged at this point. Mm. Ironically, within the hour, I received a phone call from writer Alden Nash, who cleared up some of the mystery of Howard's attitude. Only a few of my very best friends, Alden included, knew that Howard and I were engaged. Alden was blunt. You're not going to like this, but you're my friend and I want to warn you. Your boyfriend Howard is spending the night with that little actress who lives near me. So he's been cheating all the time. Then she gets a phone call. Howard's in the hospital. She goes to visit him. He's bandaged up. He's bleeding. He's just been sewn up. She breaks up with him and he cries on the hospital bed as she leaves. Right. And she also gives him all her jewelry right before, like, right? She, oh, yeah. She brings all her jewelry, presumably, to the hospital where he is bandaged up. And it's like, here you go. Here's all the gifts you gave me. We're done. And he's like crying in a cast yeah. like, Ginger! <laughs> Ginger! <laughs> People are so weird in the 20th century. (laughs) I know. It's so funny to get these like tiny little details. Yeah. And then one of the worst stories in my eyes is that she was getting a sculpture made of her by an artist who was Japanese. Uh, Noguchi was his last name. And she arranges for him to come to her house. And he's making this marble bust of her. And then one day he says, the United States government is putting me in an internment camp. I was shocked to hear that this fine artist could be treated in such a way. He seemed to accept his fate. I'll take my sculpture with me, he continued, and by the time I'm released, it should be done. You wanted it finished in pink marble, didn't you? Yes, that's correct. But how can you complete the job in an internment camp? (laughs) Don't you worry about that. I'll get it done. You'll see. And as soon as World War II was over, I said, you did nothing? You didn't? (laughs) Stop this. You didn't intervene. You're a famous actress. Like, 
don't you realize what an internment camp is? And then she says, as soon as World War II was over, Noguchi telephoned me to say he was out and a free man again and to ask when he could bring the pink marble bust over to my house. Two days later, he had arrived and unveiled his work. I was thrilled to have my likeness captured by a brilliant sculptor, and I was mightily impressed that he had the tenacity and courage to finish his work while living under such deplorable circumstances. Besides his famous portrait sculptures, he did the landscape designs for parks and sculpture gardens, such as UNESCO Garden in Paris in 1956. <laughs> it's oh. really wild the way she moves through giant moments of history with very little to do with them. Yeah. Because at this point... If you remember, like, she's gone through World War One, where her mom was, like, working in, for the military. Mom is yeah. cool. She has no thoughts on World War One. She goes through the Great Depression, does not seem affected by it at all, is <laughs> in World War Two face-to-face with a man going to an internment camp, um, who I think also is the same Noguchi who has the museum here in New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this is, this is a crazy story. It's a crazy story. Uh, I mean... It was crazy already in the book, but it's like he he was working on a pink marble bust of Ginger Rogers in an internment camp. And Ginger said, a toodaloo. Yeah, see you after the war ends. It's really wild. She does have a thing where um, when she met Dorothy Parker, do you remember this? She says like, oh, I was excited to meet Dorothy Parker. Um, And then suddenly this Asian woman appeared in front of me and she says, hi, I'm Dorothy. And then she doesn't comment on the fact that she assumed Dorothy Parker was Asian. And the story just keeps going. Wait, so it's just printed in the book that Dorothy Parker is an Asian woman and she's not. No, no, that would be Dorothy Park. (laughs) But it truly is so odd. She, I mean, yeah, there's also um, mention of an Indian woman, like, early in the book that's, you know, depressing. Yeah. And then she's like, met Eleanor Roosevelt, lovely lady, pretty plain looking, though. Yeah, I know. But I wonder now if she's, like, meeting all these white people and just assuming they're all these different races, because she's never yeah. met anyone of a different race before. I, <laughs> she... She definitely lives in her own pink marble world. Yes. I think we can say for sure. That is so funny and heartbreaking. I will say this. She's very adamant about how she is a Republican throughout Mm. the book. Yes. She meets FDR and she's like, ugh, blah. She meets Nixon and she's like, here's a picture of me and Nixon in the book. Yes. Um, That being said, the internment camps, famously FDR. That's true. So Mm -hmm. perhaps in that moment, she was like, this is a Democrat thing. Maybe. I just, it's so hard to imagine that you would be a famous starlet with someone who is like, I'm being sent to an internment camp and you'd do nothing, not even a telegram, nothing. It's wild, especially when you think about like, like Jane Fonda, you know, who would probably have gone to jail on behalf of Noguchi. (laughs) Yes, I guess, you know, Jane is... 30 years in the future. Yeah, but yeah. Mae West went to jail over um, protecting drag queens and gay men. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and her own right to be filthy on stage. Um, but yeah, like, yes, standing up was a absolute option, you guys, that yeah. Ginger did not take. It really seems like she has no real opinion on it. I think she has an opinion that you follow the government's rules. Oh, I see. Is how I read it. Yes. Because because of what's coming later in the book, which I can't wait. My my favorite part of the book is the very end. Okay. Okay. Then she marries some guy named Jack. He's in the army. Then, oop, he's gone. Five pages. (laughs) 
Bye, Jack. Five pages of Jack. Bye, Jack. Then we find out her mom was a founding member of the Committee of Un-American Activities, yes. which is the little PTA group that went to the government and said, here's who I think is a communist yes. in Hollywood and got them blacklisted. <laughs> she started the blacklist movement. It's really crazy. I truly cannot believe how much power her mom has. Her mom? I mean, the the monster of Hollywood. She went and ratted out all of Ginger's friends. Yeah. I mean, it's just all this, like, horrific history, like the internment camps and, and the, you know, the communist witch hunt period, and her mom's, like, at the forefront. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of... Like, um, her mom is so good at accumulating power. And also, yeah. I remember when we first learned about her, she's like a working class woman, right? She needs to hold down a job. She's a single mom. Yes. But then is friends with, like, the editor of The New Yorker. It becomes, I guess, is socially charming and acceptable enough that all of Ginger's elite friends get to know her mom. Yes. And then her mom reports them all to the U.S. government. Yeah, I mean, her mom was running these workshops. And if ever at the workshop, you may have mentioned that, um, the poor should have food. You were on trial a few years <laughs> later. I could not believe it. And then, you know, she really defends her mom in the book. Mm-hmm. She said, people have asked me, why did your mom rat all your friends out? And I said, have you read her testimony? Well, that's that. But then she doesn't print the testimony or say it in the book. That's true. Actually, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I was like, okay. And then she has an affair with Cary Grant. That was exciting. Very exciting. But then we get a page of Cary Grant, and then she meets a man named Jacques from France. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I'm saying it like that, but I believe it's Jacques. And uh, he's younger than her, and it's a scandal. And she brings him over from France. They get married within four months. And the next movie she stars in, she says, I'll only do it if Jacques is my co-star. Jacques never acted before. I loved it. What a power move. Are you out of your mind? It's truly nuts. I mean, but also I love that she just gets married whenever she's bored. Like that is kind of a powerful famous lady move. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure her mom is on the house grounds, no matter what husband comes and goes. Yeah. So it's like, like her partner is her mom. And then... Jacques, like, looked very sexy in tennis shorts. Yes. So Jacques is the only man she writes details about in the book in a very loving way. You get to know their marriage. Sort of my takeaway, I wrote, oh, this must be the last husband because he's actually getting a storyline. Spoiler alert, he's not. So I think he's just the only one she really loved. What did you think? Wait, I agree. I wondered also if there was kind of a power imbalance with the other husbands because I think they were all much older than her and kind of wanted her to help them with their career even though they had met yeah. her when she was already a famous star. Kind of a ridiculous move on their part. And Jacques was the only one where she was like, I can get you a job. And I bet he was so nice to her because of that. Yes, and then he followed that famous statistic of when the woman's the breadwinner, the man be cheating. Man be cheating. Mm-hmm. And he cheats on her. And she's like, ah, it was a real bummer. Really liked him, but he was the nicest. Yeah. That is one of the moments though, where I was like, gosh, Ginger Rogers, impossible for you to be a human when nobody around you is acting like a normal human. Absolutely. Yeah. And also these two male stereotypes. No, it's it's really a singular one, which is when a woman has power, my pee-pee no like it. Yes. Um, whether <laughs> I want your help, whether I'm older, whether I'm younger, whether I have money, whether I don't have money, all of them end up, you know, not liking her because she has so much power and fame and money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, then she marries a man named Bill Marshall. And she said, 
Bill said, I want to marry you. I said, I don't like men who drink, so we can't. Bill said, I'll stop drinking. So two weeks later, I married him. And two weeks after that, he started drinking again. Yeah. And he is just, he sounds like, I I guess I can't say the worst one, but he's not a great one. And this is how it ends. She said, when he came upstairs and opened the door, he looked at me as if looking in the window of a hardware store. I was the first to speak. Bill, I've had it. I'm leaving for the States. Where is my car? I told you, in an underground garage, he said, and out he walked. The next day, I consulted a French lawyer friend to see what I could do about the Rolls Royce. If you are to find the car, you will have to remain in Paris while the search goes on. And besides, he said, in France, what's yours is your husband's. I decided I needed to get out of the marriage more than I needed the car. I couldn't afford to stay in France, not working, to scour all the underground garages in Paris. I went back to my home in Oregon and filed for divorce. P.S. The Rolls Royce has never been returned, nor my jewelry. Wait, will you read the beginning line where she says he stared at her like he was looking into a hardware store? Yeah. When he came upstairs and opened the door, he looked at me as if looking into the window of a hardware store. What does that mean? (laughs) I do like it because it's one of the most emotive sentences, but yes, either he wanted to procure something from her or he found her so like she was no longer a woman and a wife. She was just thing i see i see what do you think no i really just had no idea (laughs) (laughs) i wondered if that just meant he was staring at her hard but it is a deeply emotionless description of somebody staring at you but also the most emotion in a sentence she's given like she is saying something here which is rare yes It should have read something like, he looked at me with as little interest as someone passing a for sale sign in the window of a hardware store. Yes, yeah. Or he looked at her as if he was searching for a wrench, a screwdriver. (laughs) A tool of some kind. And some plywood. (laughs) This is also the guy who is maybe domestic violence, right? Is this the same guy? Is it? There was one, I think it was him, who like, she describes that he gets belligerent um, and like grabs her. Yes. But then again, no emotional description of what that was like for her, which I kind of found gutting. Like the fact that she glossed over it so matter-of-factly. Very gutting. And yet this is the part where I remind everyone a very sad fact, which is like in the 1950s, um, domestic violence was sometimes prescribed as good marital therapy. Is that true? Yes. There was like little magazine articles about it. And uh, it was not considered rape. That's why it was not illegal. It was considered marital obligations. So I can see how Ginger saw it that way. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, it's the sad part of the podcast that comes up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) That is truly depressing. And yeah, no, when you know that historical context, it does make sense why she was sort of like glossing over it. Yeah, yeah. What I also like love about us doing this book, Karen, is I think like you're the generation below me, right? And um, like what made it into our worldviews? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, I think Ginger is like fully out of the scope for anyone who is teenager like I feel like my generation was like the last like I go in a writer's room now Mm -hmm. and like I used to be the youngest writer in every writer's room and now there will be someone who doesn't know who Billy Joel is oh yes I see what you're saying you know what I mean yeah 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 and so when I'm trying to like place who Ginger Rogers is in like the context of our current cultural zeitgeist I feel like there's a cutoff point yeah 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 I think you're right so like Obviously, Ginger Rogers, I recognize, extremely famous person. And that's kind of, honestly, one of the reasons why I really wanted to read this is because I knew she had lived through so many big moments in American history, I was like, would be so awesome to hear her take on (laughs) the Cold War. And then you didn't. Yeah, or like 
the moon landing and like truly nothing. Which I, oh, it's such a bummer, Karen, because some of the historical memoirs we do, you do get that. Really? Yeah, like when Cicely Tyson is taking us through Martin Luther King and JFK, it's like the best way to learn history yeah. is through her eyes. Uh, Ginger, however, was too busy mixing orange juice and Sprite with fine eyes. Yeah. And even the part where there was like a brief moment she gets invited by like Henry Kissinger to the White House, right? You are at my favorite part. Okay. Go ahead. Because Mick Jagger used to be the man most mentioned across all female memoirs. I clocked nine. Henry Kissinger, I believe, is now at 13. What? He is in 13 of these motherfucking celebrity memoirs. Why? Why is he here? I think this man was a little slut for female starlets and he designed a war and then came back from it and said I'm gonna try and have a like political date with like every woman I can find he is pen pals with Cher he's what yes that's what that's yes Cher's like I was pen pals with Henry Kissinger that's he's in so many that's so bizarre that's kind of creepy right it's not like a celebrity or an actress getting invited to the White House to win an award or you know like to be recognized for something it's just Henry Kissinger being like I'd like to meet her (laughs) come on over baby Yeah. yeah well then her mom passes away and she said I'll read this I had been at the playhouse only a week when the call came from my auntie Jean I could never bear to think about the day when I would have to say goodbye to my mother and now it had come and I wasn't even with her. I didn't know what to do. I was in a fog. I turned my thoughts to God and prayed. That evening, I was able to perform the show without any problems. Okay. (laughs) You know, we all deal with grief in different ways. And then she said, my dear friend Robbie Collins called and said he was flying out to be with me. Robbie was very close to my mother. She had kind of, in quotes, adopted him as a son and I considered him a brother. I still do. And he said he came to see me and asked if I was going back to California. I told him no. He was surprised. You don't mind staying and doing your show? I do mind, I answered. I'm going to do it because it's what I signed up to do. I remember his reply. He just said, bravo. It's wild. Yeah. The one thing I will say, though, is I bet this is... That's what I thought she was going to say, too. Yeah. Mom would have wanted that. Yeah. And she's definitely dealing with her grief by not... But then she ends the chapter with a Bible verse and says about her mom, she loved God and she taught me how to love him too. She gave me the gift of Christian science. It sustained her and continues to sustain me. The end. Yep, that's it. Of her mom in the book. But then we're sort of at the end of the book where she stops doing films. She plays all my favorite roles. She is Dolly in Hello, Dolly. She is Auntie Mame and Mame, which, God, I would have killed to have seen those performances. And then she sort of eases into retirement. She doesn't say she doesn't want to retire, but it's just sort of happening. And then chapter 50 is titled Fans Mm -hmm. and about how she couldn't do this without fans. And then we're at the very end of the book with chapter 51. It's titled Life's Voyage. And she says, this very fact brings with it a responsibility. As celebrities, whether we like it or not, we represent our country wherever we are. Our behavior and attitude are reflections upon ourselves and upon America. And then a couple paragraphs later, she says, anyway, I do feel responsible to the public. And that's why I have turned down films for reasons of raw and rough language or a tawdry and worthless plot or unnecessary violence. What kind of sentence does such a film make to our society and what kind of standard does it present? Fortunately, films like Dances with Wolves restore our faith in good themes and excellence in production. (laughs) She's going to end the book praising Dances with Wolves. This is strange. That is like the second to last page. It's like Dances with Wolves is a great film. Goodbye. Love Ginger Rogers. (laughs) 
This whole last paragraph, I remember, because when I was reading the fans one, I remember thinking like, (laughs) this is the end of the book. Great. So nice. She's saying essentially, thank you for being a fan. And then the Life's Voyage final chapter reads like an award speech that she wanted to give. (laughs) To young teens on drugs. Yes. And then one of the advice that she gives them is like, I never drank. You shouldn't drink. Or, right? Something like that? Absolutely. And and children should look to their elders, which like, I get it. Then she goes on to be like, I love dogs and cats. Yes. (laughs) You're like, okay, great. I mean, I'm sorry. I cannot. I am literally, (laughs) I am crying (laughs) laughing over Dances with Wolves. I just like, I just like wasn't ready for that to be Ginger Rogers' favorite movie. No. I this movie um was a part of uh my childhood and it's like you know it's Kevin Costner's wet dream of working with Native Americans and <laughs> exploiting their stories Ginger Rogers favorite film um yeah but yeah and then she ends with like I thought her final paragraph was really weird what did you think of like the very last sentences should we read it yeah let's read it you read it Karen As the curtain comes down on my final thoughts I would like to use a line from my one woman show that has meant a great deal to me through the years It is part of the scientific interpretation of the Lord's Prayer by Mary Baker Eddy, and love is reflected in love. This is everything I want to say and more. Blessings. I feel like this is her way of saying love is love is love is love. I think that is a uh, generous interpretation to say a scientific interpretation of the Lord's Prayer. Now, these are two worlds. I mean, these are her worlds, Christian science. Yeah. But love is reflected in love. It's also not a very loving book. It is not a loving book. And also saying that love is reflected in love doesn't really mean anything. But is said to be science. Yes. But do you think, (laughs) is that just like a term that Christian scientists use when they interpret things? Do they say it's our scientific interpretation? You know what? Let's find out. Yeah, it's a good point. Let's see. I went to good old Google. I typed in love is reflected in love. And the first thing that came up is journal.christianscience.com. Wow. And it says the true concept of that love, which is the reflection of love, destroys any desire to dictate or dominate. So yeah, it must be a a big Christian scientist meme. No. Wow. Wow. Karen, I I, thank you for making it through that book with me. What a wild ride. I did not expect any of this. It was a really wild ride. And it was a moment where I did read the entire thing and then think, I don't really know Ginger Rogers any better than I did before I read this book. Yeah, uh, completely. I, I, even when she wrote about all her shows and films, you don't really get, I mean, the blue feather dress was the best part. Yes. You know, yeah. that's where you see her and her mom in action. Okay, so we end every podcast with something I call the book deal test. First question, was the author vulnerable in the sharing of their truth? I'm going to say openly shared, but not emotionally vulnerable. Yeah, and I'm going to say not entirely truthful either. Okay. I'm going to give her a no. I think her etiquette yes. kept out some truth. Yes. But it was like from an etiquette place, not from like a lying place. Okay, second question. Was it entertaining to read? Um, at times? Karen, you can say no. That is allowed. I'm giving a hard <laughs> okay, no. I'll say no. Thank you for coming on this podcast, by the way, and reading an entire book. <laughs> and final question. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Oh, um, 
No, but wait, actually, reading this book has led to me becoming, like, like having a, a proper in-person conversation with you. So I will say yes. We will always have this moment. Yeah. I agree with that. I'm going to say, is there anything within the book that elevated my life? No. I mean, when she just let Noguchi go to the internment <laughs> camp, I just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, it didn't elevate my life in any way. Uh, Karen. Tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and and love your work. Oh, um, they can find me on Instagram and not really on Twitter anymore. And in Brooklyn, I'm usually just walking around the streets of Brooklyn. <laughs> but don't find her in person. Just you can follow her online. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. I'm Karen G with an extra E at the end on all social media. And she is so funny and so delightful. <laughs> and I hear about you all the time through my friend Ariel. And so I love you so oh, much. Oh, I love you too. This was truly so nice. Thank you for having Yay. me. Thank you for coming on. That's all for this week's episode. If you have something to say, you want to talk back to this episode, or you have a question, or maybe you think you have a difference of opinion, join the book club. The book club is on Patreon. We have a chat, and there are so many cookies in the chat. We talk about the episodes. We talk about book recommendations. We just talk about our lives. We break things down. It's super fun. It's on Patreon. You can join for as little as $1 or $5 a month, and then just download the mobile app, and you can chat all day long with us. Also, if you join Patreon, all the episodes are ad-free. So we started running ads. If you don't like that, join our Patreon. We send you a podcast feed with ad-free episodes and everyone comes to your phone. You would also get all of the bonus episodes and there are so many great bonus episodes. You get all of that when you join our Patreon. And if you're a super hardcore cookie, we have a live book club on Zoom once a month. It's on Sundays. It's so fun. Sometimes we dress up. We chat about the episodes. No reading is required. If you want to read along, it's so fun. But also, most people just listen to the episode. And then we chat and hang out and check in. And a lot of really deep friendships have formed. It's the best. A big thank you to our podcast producer, Kate Downey, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, our sound engineer, Marcus Hom, and our amazing assistant, Jaren Padre. I also want to thank our friends over at Pattern Brands. They are our product partner and they keep me and my guests just rolling in the cutest tiny spoons and candles and so many other cool things and paquetto. I genuinely love our product partners. I love them so much. So go check them out. Everything is linked in the show notes. And if you have questions, go to the Patreon chat lounge and I'll see you there. Oh,